this podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, June 27th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Di Pazara es the gist. Soy Mike Pesca. Okay, I would like to talk about the first night of the debate, and hopefully you will hear this before we're overtaken by the second night of the debate, or as it will come to be known, the 22-hour Julian surge. But I've got a spiel for that. Let's wait to the spiel. Because first of all, I've got to tell you about what happened in Alabama. Maybe you heard, it's from Alabama.com. Alabama woman loses unborn child after being shot, gets arrested, shooter goes free. Okay, the unborn child part, that is not a factual status of a human. It is a pro-life assertion. (laughs) But the facts of this, put that aside, because the facts of this are crazy. Alabama has just hit the superfecta of racism, anti-women, punitive, and just flat-out stupid. They've criminalized the act of getting shot. Here's what happened. Marsha Jones was five months pregnant. She was pregnant with a fetus, not an unborn child, by the way. If she delivered that fetus, by the way, five months, that fetus would die without medical care. Just saying all of that. Anyway, Marsha Jones gets in an altercation. Maybe she picks the fight. Maybe she hurled an insult. It's unknown. We're relying on the local police department's description. But she was shot. She was shot. She was victimized by a shooter holding a gun that did the shooting, which was not a response that was requested or, I'm going to presume, particularly approved of by Marsha Jones. And because she was shot, her fetus was lost. If you want to say colloquially, the baby was lost, that's fine, because she did miscarry. And now, because of that, she's charged with manslaughter. Quote, The investigation showed that the only true victim in this was the unborn baby, Pleasant Grove Police Lieutenant Danny Reed said of the shooting. Yes, the only victim was the baby. And of course, the woman who was shot maybe could be considered a victim, also a victim for being shot. She's also being further victimized by Alabama's, what did I say? Racist, anti-woman, punitive, just flat out stupid prosecution. The five-month fetus, quote, was dependent on its mother to try to keep it from harm, and she shouldn't seek out unnecessary physical altercations, Danny Reed added. True, but to be charged with a crime, if, in the opinion of Danny Jones, there was an unnecessary physical altercation, is quite a leap. So take heed, pregnant women. Don't yell at the delivery guy. Don't criticize the asshole who won't get up on the subway for you. Don't pick a fight, which means don't get punched. Definitely don't get shot because then you are a murderer. If you laugh too hard, that could be shaken baby syndrome. If you're pregnant with triplets, maybe you're a possible serial killer. All right, I'm not going to be glib. I would like to say that even if you believe the authorities framing, and that's all we have to go by, and why should we believe the authorities framing? They're so untrustworthy as to actually have brought manslaughter charges against a woman for being shot. If you believe what they say, that she initiated the fight, and they don't say she physically initiated it, they just say she initiated it, maybe she yelled at the other woman over a question of paternity, apparently. Even if you think that she did that and shouldn't have done that, 
you have to admit that doing so did not kill her fetus. An idiot with a gun killed her fetus. So what I'm saying is that pregnant women should not be criminally charged for the unforeseen, unintentional consequences of their actions. A female human, even a pregnant female human, is more than a baby protection mechanism. The legal system is not consumer reports giving grades to car seats. People are people even when they have future people within them. There is no higher standard for a pregnant woman not to get shot than there is for you and I not to get shot. By the way, Alabama also has a chemical castration law. So isn't the pharmacist who prescribes the drugs a murderer, a sperm murderer? should be noted that the same prosecutor who's going after Marsha Jones, the pregnant woman who was shot, also tried to indict the shooter. Her name's Ebony Jemison. Their theory then was that the shooter was guilty of manslaughter, i.e. it wasn't self-defense. She did not adhere to a duty to retreat. They failed in that undertaking. The grand jury didn't buy it. So then they turn around, they switch course, and they blame the victim for the crime of being shot by the shooter who they once claimed was committing the crime of shooting. Well, look, I guess as long as some young black woman goes to jail, they're okay. I think it may be time for America to spontaneously abort Alabama. I'm sorry, friend of the gist, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist John Archibald. I'm sorry, friend of me, Mike Pesca, Paul Bluter, who's a huge booster for his adopted state. But if Alabama leaves the other 49, I think then and only then can it be sanctioned by a UN tribunal. And if you think I'm wrong, you can appeal that decision to future Senate candidate Roy Moore. On the show today, it's a full debate analysis in the spiel. There was so much disagreement on the stage. There was really only one fact that brought everyone together, and that was Beto O'Rourke lost. Okay, show of hands, how many think Beto O'Rourke lost? Everyone? Okay, not you, Congressman. You'll get your time in a second. But before that, let's go to Hungary by way of Denmark via the electric guitar. Andras Simonyi is Hungary's former ambassador to the United States, and he grew up in his home country at a time of dreary communist oppression. But then his father was allowed to move his family to Copenhagen, and the world opened up through the radio and the amplifier. Rockin' Toward a Free World When the Stratocaster Beat the Kalishnikov is the name of the memoir. Its author, Ambassador Andras Simonyi, is up next. Andras Simonyi was once Hungarian's ambassador to the United States. He was also Hungary's ambassador to NATO. But before that, way before that, as a young boy in Hungary, he had an opportunity to go to Denmark. And when he was in Denmark, when his family was living in Denmark, he fell in love with rock and roll music. And that led to a lifelong affair, which he analogizes the loosening of the rule of law in his home country, rocking toward a free world when the Stratocaster beat the Kalishnikov is his memoir. Mr. Ambassador Simonyi, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So you were a pretty, your family was a pretty fortunate, but also a skilled one in terms of the languages and skill set of your dad. That is what allowed you to go to Denmark. So this is 1961. Yes, uh, exactly. My, my, father was a textile engineer before the war and after the war. 
the communists needed his skills, and that led us to to Denmark, out of uh, a very gray Hungary that was under a Russian occupation, a, a communist country. And we landed in one of the most liberal and most beautiful countries of, in, in the world. So that's where the whole book starts. Yeah. What was the, how oppressive a society was Hungary? Uh, truth be told, after the revolution in 1956, when we attempted to break away from the Russians, it was harsh, but it was never as harsh as the Soviet system or the Romanian system, uh, but it was hard, harsh enough. Uh, don't kid yourself. It was an oppressive communist country. It was a one-party system. The party wanted to control everything. It couldn't. There was no freedom of speech. Why do you think the... Soviet Union, which had these satellite countries, why did they react to the 56 uprising with a loosening of tension rather than a clamping down, do you think? Well, uh, uh, to be more precise, they did clamp down and the communists did clamp down. Uh, there were executions. There were uh, there was an ex uh, exodus of, of, of Hungarians. 250, 300,000 people fled the country. But it was a message uh, to the to the system and to the Soviets that you don't control everything. And there comes a point where people will be fed up. So you'd better be careful. So you better not be as harsh as you were in the 50s because things will go wrong. And truth be told, the Russians, the Soviets were always afraid of the Hungarians. Rightly so, because later in 1989, it was the Hungarians uh, and the Poles that broke up the system and uh, broke up the Warsaw Pact. So before Denmark, what was your knowledge of or exposure to rock and roll? My first exposure to rock and roll was in 1959 when I was seven years old. And I remember we went to, to see the Three Musketeers in the neighborhood theater. Before the actual film, there was a newsreel about the fantastic things that, you know, Hungary and Soviet Union did and uh, the successes of the of the party, et cetera, et cetera. But there was a little snippet which was supposed to be showing how bad American culture was. Mm -hmm. And they played a little piece of a guy standing there with a guitar and musicians around him and he was twisting and swirling and... That was Elvis Presley. The, the commentator said, oh, this is terrible. Uh, American kids are going to get sick of this. And I was just sitting there and I said, wow, <laughs> this is my music. It's like as if someone showed reefer madness and someone got the idea, ooh, this looks fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So when you were in Denmark, then was rock and roll in the air? I mean, this was still pre-Beatles when you first land there. You know, it was at, at a school party when I was, when we gathered around the record player and suddenly a guy put on a, a record and there was the Beatles. It was just amazing. I, and I was standing there for hours and wanting to play the record and all my loving and, mm. and it, it really grabbed my heart. And there was something about that music. I, I, I just immediately thought, hey, these guys understand me. This is going to be my music. Yeah. And so from then on, I was hooked. And I would try and get my hands on any record I could. I was mesmerized by the electric guitar. And a few years later, 
uh, I got myself an electric guitar and <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah. Well, you had to go back. You would go back to Hungary every so often, but for extended periods of time. So when you played the guitar in public or when you invited other teenagers to watch your band in Hungary, what was the reaction? Did they, did they see rock and roll as an act of rebellion? Did they see it as something only affordable to the elites who had access to the West? How did they look at it? There was a lot more rock and roll in Hungary than I had thought. Not supported by the government. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was very little rock and roll music on Hungarian state radio. Very select groups were were played. So what, what was uh, what was approved by the Hungarian authorities? What was what was good rock? Well, you know, sup with camel, strawberry alarm clock, incense and peppermints, that sort of thing. Well, ni- nice nice music. Right, the Beatles right. by the mid mid sixties, Beatles was deemed innocent, so the Beatles mm-hmm. were there. But you know, Stones a little more dangerous. Stones a little more more dangerous. You wouldn't hear mothers of invention. Well, and it took a it took a while before they played. Uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix. The government did not help us, but there was Radio Free Europe. Mm. There was Voice of America, and most importantly, Radio Luxembourg. And the Radio Luxembourg was the music not only we listened to, but also kids in the West listened to. Keith Richards listened to um, uh, Radio Luxembourg. When I closed my eyes and listened to Radio Luxembourg, I was in the West. It transposed me to the West. Rock and roll was our internet mm-hmm. to, to the free world. It was unstoppable. And it, it penetrated through the Iron Curtain. I was totally astonished that uh, so many of my, my peers and my friends they all listened to the same music I listened to. It was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then um, Traffic, uh, what was that, the last concert in Hungary that was allowed? In 1968, uh, Traffic came to Budapest, and we, I have no idea how they did it, and I have no idea how they got it. There was some kind of a Hungarian in London who, 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 um, who arranged it. So Traffic comes to Budapest, and uh, for the first time, we had the opportunity to hear a real famous top rock band play in Budapest. And that was really a, a game changer. Don't forget, that was also 1968. In 1968, mm-hmm. there was something going on in Central Europe. Yeah, Prague was Spring. The Prague Spring, yep. exactly. And, you know, Hungarians, more quietly, were kind of following the, the Prague Spring. We were really hopeful, and maybe that is why, in that atmosphere, some people somewhere took the courageous uh, decision uh, to let traffic into Hungary. Uh, the authorities were really afraid. As we entered the stadium, we could see plainclothes policemen uh, and <laughs> not so plainclothes policemen trying to hold kids back from from getting rowdy. But it was an, an incredible moment. And it just uh, – what, what was fascinating is that all the kids in the stadium, maybe 15,000 of them, they knew the lyrics to the traffic songs. That was, that was fantastic. Hungary liberalized for a lot of reasons, but largely it reflected the changes going on that also liberalized uh, the Soviet Union, Glasnost, and so forth. But do you think culture – 
played a role, a change or an openness of culture played a role in bringing down communism? I would say that rock and roll is is the single most important factor in smashing the monopoly of uh, communist ideology in Eastern Europe. Without rock and roll, I don't think the Soviet Union would have broken up. And therefore, I do understand why communists were so scared of rock and roll music because it was individual and the music itself was the message. Well, why? How? I mean, from from what I understand, I know that there were different movements taking place in parallel, but from what I understand of the history, and you know, my, my personal history is, I think, sophomore, junior year of college, I enrolled in a course called Political Communication in the Soviet Union, and when the course actually convened, it was renamed Political Communication in the former Soviet Union. So that's where I'm coming from. Um, but I thought it was mostly uh, just a series of economic failures that uh, made clear that this system wasn't working and a bit of openness or liberalization based mostly on the acknowledgement that the market would provide for people better and maybe you could still uh, hold on to some relics of communism. That was the mover. So tell me why you think without rock and roll it wouldn't have happened. Because rock and roll music respects the individual. It respects the freedom of thought. It respects the freedom of expression. And nothing is more dangerous to an ideological society which is trying to force feed Marxism to its population than this kind of freedom that rock and roll represents. When four kids are on stage and start pouring out a message about, hey, there is a better life over there across the Iron Curtain, that was really a very, very powerful thing. And more they try to suppress it, uh, the stronger the message got. And one more thing. I used to be a purist. Yeah, I, I used to think that it was... It was, you know, Hungarians should, should sing in English because the language of rock and roll is English. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I understood, hey, wait a minute. If you want to get your message through to Hungarians, you appropriate the music, you appropriate the style, and you add your own message in your own language. And that's when it really became dangerous. When Hungarian bands started singing in Hungarian, it started with double speak, and then later not so double speak strong statements about how they hated the system, that was really a scary thing. Uh, There were a number of other issues, but I would argue that rock and roll was definitely one of the decisive factors in breaking up communism. So you play in a band called uh, Coalition of the Willing, right? Mm -hmm. And Jeff Skunk Baxter is in that band from the Doobie Brothers. And what's it like for you guys who are ambassadors to play with this professional musician? Does he have to? Are you as good as him? Does he teach you things? Nobody is as good as Skunk Baxter. You know, Skunk Skunk Baxter is right there up. uh, He's he's an Ivy Ivy Leaguer um, in terms of guitar playing. Um, it's, It's still a great honor. And it's always a pinch me moment when I'm standing there next to Jeff Baxter. Um, and to your question, when you're on stage, you're not a diplomat. Uh, I never wanted my band, the Coalition of the Willing, to be looked upon as, well, they're nice, you know, 
They're the singing ambassadors. How cute. <laughs> that, would, that would have been a disaster. I never wanted that. So, therefore, uh, when I'm on stage and when we play, we work hard, you know. We, we really work hard to, to give our best. And, you know, what we really want is after the, t- the second note, I want people to forget that I was ever an ambassador. I'm just a musician, a humble musician, and standing on stage playing the music I love. So I just, I just, I don't know if the word is challenge you, but I, I as I read this book, an idea uh, that I don't even know how much I agree with, but it's an inkling that I had hit me, which is I think in the more romantic days of the late 80s or 90s or when the Soviet Union was falling. We did think that there was oppression and there was openness and openness would lead to what we talked about, a flourishing. And rock and roll certainly represented more on the freewheeling open side of things. But now so much of that seems not to have happened that they almost seem, I'm not going to say entirely uncorrelated. And I understand that Putin jailed Pussy Riot, but by the same token, there is a whole lot of uh, the genre of rock and roll music being used and played and jammed along to by people who absolutely have no problem with the forces of oppression. And I'm not going to implicate Skunk Baxter in this, but of course, if you go to, you know, a kid rock concert or a lot of, you know, older aging rock and rollers, you get mostly Trump fans there. And so I wonder if it was, if we could chalk it up to romanticism that we put too much on the appeal of freedom, or if we didn't take into account nationalism. This is a problem that that I, I, I think a lot about the innocence of rock and roll was lost somewhere in the early mid 70s mm-hmm. i would argue this moment lasted a lot longer in eastern europe and that's a fact you wanting to change your democracy to become a better democracy and we wanted to change from dictatorship to democracy period and at the end of the day there's something that should not be lost with rock and roll. Do not take your freedom for granted. Yeah. Okay, one last question. Kiss or the Ramones? And I only ask you because Gene Simmons and Tommy Ramone are both Hungarian by ethnicity. The Ramones. Tommy was a friend. That is that is the correct <laughs> answer on so many levels. Andras Simonyi is the author of Rockin' Toward a Free World When the Stratocaster Beat the Kalishnikov. He was Hungary's ambassador to the USA and to NATO. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Now the spiel. The Democratic debate was last night. Another Democratic debate is tonight. Governed by the same impossible rules of allowing 10 people who are professional talkers to have their say on the most important topics of the day. The debate itself didn't fail miserably. And the debaters themselves also didn't fail miserably. In fact, there was a consensus that the only candidate who went in polling in double digits, Elizabeth Warren, did quite well. Experts cited a few others as standing out. Here was Nate Silver's assessment. And I mean, you know, will Castro be at 2% to 3% instead of 1%? Maybe, probably, right? Will um, Gabber be at 3 or 4 instead of 1 or 2? Maybe, probably, right? 
Inslee, two instead of one, maybe, probably. Jeffrey Skelling, elections analyst of 538, also cited one of those candidates who might get a bump. Tulsi Gabbard had a, a pretty good night. Skelling's 538 colleague, Perry Bacon Jr., was on The Daily Show. He put forth these names. De Blasio and John Delaney, who I, my guess is John Delaney, not a lot of folks have heard of up to now, but I thought right, he had a pretty right. strong night in jumping in there and getting in there. And he cited two candidates who might appeal to more moderate voters. Tim Ryan, I think, did the best job of saying, "I'm." You know, he talked about the opioid crisis. Yes. He did a good job, actually. He sort of named, he sort of name checked parts of Ohio, and yes, I think he right. talked about rest in America. Klobuchar did right. too, in terms of talking about she wants to unify all people. I think mm-hmm. those were pretty good answers. Finally, let's check in with John Heilman on MSNBC. Cory Booker had a very uh, good night, I think, in a lot of people's judgment. And then there's Amy Klobuchar, who I found a really interesting split where. A lot of men in the Democratic political class were kind of like, eh, and all of the women thought she did incredibly well. So recapping, everyone said Elizabeth Warren did well, but then experts also cited de Blasio, Delaney, Gabbard, Ryan, Klobuchar, Booker Castro, and Inslee all said to have done well. That is everyone. That is everyone who is on the stage, but Beto, everyone, but Beto had a good debate. Everyone increased their vote share, which is not how pie charts work. Unless they do. I mean, it could actually work out in this case. For one thing, all of these gains, maybe one or two or three percent supposed gains, can come from the large percentage of voters who say they went in undecided, or they could come at the expense of the popularity of one of the candidates in tonight's debate. I'm looking at you, Hickenlooper. Or, and I think this is most plausible, Reading all those supposed bumps is the new phrenology. They're not going to happen. Julian Castro's impressive intimacy with immigration law notwithstanding. And you said recently that the reason you didn't want to repeal Section 1325 was because uh, you were concerned about human trafficking and, and drug trafficking. But let me tell you what. Section 18, uh, Title 18 of the U.S. Code, Title 21, and Title 22 already cover if human we, trafficking. Beto. Learn to code. But other than what seemed to be a smackdown, what did Castro really endorse there? His plan is big and bold and detailed and might actually be in support of a policy that most voters disagree with, which is to say he believes in eliminating the entire concept of illegal immigration. No immigration will be a violation of criminal law. Though the borders wouldn't be open, There would still be the possibility of deportation, but it would be less likely and there would be no punishment or detention at the border. That definitely is a correction to Trump's vicious excess. But is it a winner for Democrats? Is it even a winning argument among Democrats in a primary? Similarly, Elizabeth Warren endorsed eliminating private insurance, and so did Bill de Blasio. Cory Booker demurred. Or at least he declined to raise his hand, even though he does co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' bill, which would do this. But a counterpoint was raised from an odd, or at least way out there, just speaking in terms of podium placement source, John Delaney. If you go to every hospital in this country and you ask them one question, which is how would it have been for you last year if every one of your bills were paid at the Medicare rate? Every single hospital administrator said, 
they would close. Jeff Greenfield, writing in Politico, called that statement the landmine that just got laid for Elizabeth Warren. His point is that Warren's position, eliminating private health care, isn't just unpopular with the public, it's unpopular among Democrats. Democrats were saying so from the stage. Now, I don't know if I could see a world where a John Delaney argument in an ad undoes the prospect of a popular candidacy, but this is a decent point to note. So there is the kind of debate performance that seems like a cool zinger in the moment, and the media very much notices these and likes to keep score of these. But there is also the kind of debate performance that has longer-term consequences, and these are often harder to predict. There could be the negative statement or endorsement that redounds to your detriment in the future, or there can be the statement that gives you wings that no one saw coming. Of course, there's also the kind of statement that very much seems like a failed zinger in the moment. And these are usually quite easy to discern. One tell is that the statement comes from the mouth of Jay Inslee. It is not right that the CEO of McDonald's makes 2,100 times more than the people slinging hash at McDonald's. Slinging hash. Big pimpin'. Slinging hash. 86, the whiskey, Tommy Rye, Adam and Eve and a raft wreck em. Later, in fact, a sentence later, Inslee said this. Look it, Donald Trump is simply wrong. He says wind turbines cause cancer. We know they cause jobs. Caused by wind and causing jobs. Is there anything turbines can't do? These windmills, they're almost like, I don't know, job mills. And what did we used to call job mills? I think we just called them mills, didn't we? This Inslee, he gets it. What he wants to do is he wants to be the Cause a job president, though the current occupant will not like that, as he used to always say on The Apprentice, pack your bags, your job is uncaused. Inslee came off like a sincere dork. Among the one percenters, Inslee has one thing to say. He said that thing, climate change, pretty well. de Blasio had a lot to say, just not much to stand on. Tim Ryan had something to say. He just said it way too loudly and aggressively. John Delaney had something to say, which was, every time, you guys are going way too far. And then there was Tulsi Gabbard, who to my ears really didn't have much to say. I think we're talking about this in the wrong way. You're talking about one bill over another bill. Really what we're talking about is our objective, making sure that every single sick American in this country is able to get the health care that they need. Yes, Representative, because bills are what becomes laws, and law is the mechanism to making sure that every single sick American in this country is able to get the health care that they need. But there was no time to raise such an important point about civics. There wasn't much time to be civil or substantive or surprising. It was about the best NBC could do with the forum they were handed. It was about the best the DNC could do with a field this big. You have one debate where everyone, okay, almost everyone, sorry, Governor Bullock, goes at it like one huge buffet line at the Sizzler. And then in the future, you pare down the guest list to a more intimate dinner party, like say, I don't know, 17 people. Luckily tonight, we will have another go at this. One more miasma from Miami. Winning minds and warming hearts at the Adrian Arsh Center for the Performing Arts. You know, they say the sequel is never as good as the original, but the exception just might be when the original is pretty lackluster. The bar that they set here is this. If the audio works, they'll be doing great. 
You just don't want to hear questions by the former anchors who've left the stage or even worse, audio piped in of a straggling John Delaney wandering around trying to squeeze in that one last anecdote about his grandfather. I mean, that one would have won the whole ball of wax. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. And in Minnesota, we say their job is well done. Some foam, some more beer. But in Texas, we say minimum sizzle, maximum steak. And in Washington, the phrase we use is small rash, all hash. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she has this idea of letting Steve Bullock, Wayne Messam, and Mike Ravel sit in front of tonight's stage and comment on what's going on like Mystery Science Theater 3000. Then Delaney and de Blasio heard about this and they wanted in on their thing. It ruined it for everyone. The gist. Strap in tonight, kids. Are you ready for the Seth momentum? Oompru depru depru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>